Hello everyone, this is Chris Martin. Welcome to another episode of Half Hour of Heterodoxy. I'm here today with Dr. Scott Lilienfeld. He's a professor of psychology at Emory University. Uh, he's a generalist when it comes to psychology, so he's done work in personality psychology, clinical psychology, social psychology, and a little work on neuroscience as well. He's the author of a popular textbook. He's also the author of 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology and also more recently of Brainwashed, the seductive allure of mindless neuroscience, which I believe is came out four years ago. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right, 2013, that's right. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chris, thanks for having me. So we're here to talk primarily about your recent article on microaggressions um, from about a year ago. It's published in a general psychology journal and you've talked about it at conferences as well. Before we begin talking about your article, could you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write this article? Sure. Um, so just for people who aren't that familiar with it, the, the microaggressions concept has gotten really hot over the last couple of years, especially in the U.S. I've learned that it's not quite as hot in some other countries like Australia, where I just spent about a month. They've heard of it, but it's not quite as hot there. But the idea here, is, which is not an unreasonable one in my view, is that there, there may be sort of unintentional, often unintentional snubs, slights, insults, and so on that stigmatized groups, particularly racial minorities, but other groups experience from time to time. And those kinds of experiences, according to the microaggression research program, as I call it, may have detrimental effects on mental health. So how did I get interested? I, I had not heard of it until five or six years ago. I think I may, I think I may have heard of it just from uh, in passing in literature, but I think it had not really crossed my radar until five or six years ago when I noticed it becoming quite big on a number of college campuses, including our campus at Emory University in Atlanta. A number of people were beginning to talk about it, and a number of people were beginning to, to raise concerns about microaggressions on campus, particularly toward racial minorities. I obviously became interested in that as well. And it particularly caught my attention, I think, about three years ago when I began to hear that there were various training programs on, on campus that incorporated microaggressions, trying to get faculty members and students to recognize microaggressions, to be able to tell them uh, when they were happening, and then ostensibly to learn how to avoid them. Obviously, very well-intentioned, well-meaning programs. But as an outsider, I became interested in the question are these programs well supported? Are they grounded in good research? And more broadly, is there a good research foundation to the microaggression research program? Is it really true that we understand what microaggressions are, that they have clear boundaries, that people can, can agree on what microaggressions are and aren't, and so on? So out of curiosity, I just began to read the literature, began to read some of the seminal articles. The first major one, just about a decade or so ago, by, by Daryl Wing Sue. And to be honest with you, I didn't really come in with any particular preconceptions other than wondering what was up. I was sort of curious as to what the, the status of the research literature was. But I have to say, the more I read, the more interested I became, but also in some ways the more concerned I became, because the more I read, the more I became persuaded that the there was something there to the concept. I, I, I think there actually still is some truth to the concept in there somewhere, but I also became increasingly convinced that people were not approaching it all that well, 
and that the concept was far too nebulous, far too fuzzy to afford real-world applications. And the more I read, the more persuaded I became of that. And then eventually, I'm forgetting exactly when, probably after about four or five months of reading the literature, reading pretty much everything that was out there at that time that was published in peer-reviewed journals, I said, I, I think I should write this up because I think I need to get the word out that, yes, there there's probably some truth here, but I'm quite convinced there's some truth here. But by the same token, I'm also pretty convinced that people are rushing to apply these concepts prematurely in a way that could actually be harmful. And before you wrote this article, had there been any, um, in the academic literature, had there been any criticism of the microaggression concept? Good question. A little bit here and there. Uh, I would say there was some scattered uh, criticism. I would say most of it, though, came from more informal sources, blogs, and so on, particularly of a conservative bent. Some of the criticisms, I think, were, were reasonable. Others, I think, I don't even agree with necessarily. Um, I think I think a lot of the criticisms that were, were centered uh, in more popular um, venues, like, like blogs and various websites, were more concerned about the over-application of the concept and the concern that people might be uh, attributing microaggressions to fairly innocuous statements that just expressed various political views. I understand why it was coming primarily from the political right and the political left, because I think a lot of the, the things that are labeled as microaggressions, by no means all, but a lot of things that are labeled as microaggressions might be statements that some socially conservative people might hold. So, for example, if you look at Daryl Wing Sue's list of microaggressions, some of them actually are things I would certainly agree are highly offensive, too. I don't disagree with them on all of them, but there, there are others that include things like uh, saying that America as a land of opportunity counts as a microaggression, according to his uh, list, which, by the way, is publicly distributed many universities and colleges saying that uh, I believe America uh, is or should be a melt melting pot also counts as a microaggression saying that uh, when I look at you saying to an African-American when I look at you I really see you as a person I don't see you as an African-American primarily I don't see race all of those things are uh, things that at least according to some scholars, including some of the top scholars in the field, are listed as microaggressions. So it's not surprising that a lot of the criticisms of the concept came from more socially conservative venues. Okay. So with that background in mind, let's talk about your article. What was the outline of it? I think you, you broke it down into three specific criticisms, broadly. Yeah, I had several different criticisms. I think the way I would sort of think about them is... Um, uh, one big criticism concerns the um, uh, the nature of the construct itself. Do we understand what it is? And one of the points I raised is that even though I think there's something there, right now it's, it's so vague and so nebulous, in, it could in principle include almost anything that could offend almost anyone. And I think that's part of the problem. It lends itself to too much abuse, too much misunderstanding. That was one criticism. Another big criticism I had is that it, it seems to run counter to what we as psychologists have learned over the past few decades, which is that almost all of our reactions, that includes me, you, includes all of us, almost all of our reactions to the world are partly a function of the perceived, but they're also a, a function of the perceiver and the person who's who's interacting with, with the stimulus. So one of the criticisms I have of the microaggression concept and the way it's applied is that, yes, there's no question that sometimes people do emit 
insensitive statements. Some, some of them probably are, are, are racist and come from uh, a racist place. Others, though, may be misinterpreted. Uh, some of them may be innocuous. And one of the one of the big concerns I have is that the, the literature, most of it, with a few exceptions, does not take into account the attitudinal or personality characteristics of the person doing the perceiving. And in a particular, very few of the studies had tried to statistically control for a variable that psychologists call neuroticism or negative emotionality, which is the tendency to experience negative affects, negative emotions of many kinds, including a sense of victimization, a sense of being easily hurt, and, and so on. Some people, I should point out, have misinterpreted my statements, although I was very clear about it in the article, to say that that meant I'm saying that microaggressions are entirely in the minds of the perceiver. I definitely don't believe that. What I am saying is that there may be a component of the reaction to microaggressions that in some individuals may reflect their personality traits, their attitudes, and so on. And an interrelated criticism I had is that, in my view, a lot of the claims, again, they may be right and they may be wrong, but a lot of the claims about microaggressions being linked to negative mental health outcomes are premature. I, again, I suspect they probably are in some cases, but we don't know. A lot of people were, were drawing strong causal conclusions from, from correlational evidence, and one of the things we have learned in psychology the hard way we teach our students is that correlation doesn't always Im imply causation, and merely because the same people who report micro, lots of microaggressions tend to be the same people who report a lot of negative mental health outcomes does not necessarily mean that one causes the other. Although, again, I suspect there, my hunch is that there's going to turn out to be some causal link there. I also suspect it's probably not going to be quite as strong, quite as pronounced as some of the microaggression proponents have to say, but we will see. Okay. Yeah, on the issue of what exactly counts as a microaggression and the lens through which you interpret it, I find that as an immigrant and as an Indian, sometimes people say to me, you speak English without an accent, or I don't hear this quite as much, but you speak English really well. And to some degree, I'm not sure quite how to take it. If they were definitely, if there was definitely malicious intent, I think I would recognize it in their voice. Mm -hmm. And in absolutely. general, there isn't. Yeah, so I tend absolutely. to interpret them as benign. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that... Um, um, by the way, unfortunately, I can't see you right now because I'm having a little uh, a little glitch on my computer. But hopefully, that'll can you you can see me the okay. Yeah, right? I can see you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, um, um, yeah. So I, I think there, that's actually a good example because there, there's a case where the person saying it may be somewhat insensitive, maybe even somewhat oblivious. Whether or not they actually mean harm is unclear, and whether or not it's reflecting racism or prejudice is also not clear. I don't think we really know in those kinds of cases. I, I think one of my concerns, and, and, and John Haidt has raised some of the same concerns, is that I, I think some, again I want to say all, but some of the, I think the microaggression uh, literature almost seems to, um, as a default option, think the worst of people who deliver these statements. And I think that may be dangerous. Again, I suspect that some of the people emitting these statements are in fact prejudiced and racist. On the other hand, it might be better as a default option not to assume the worst and to first try to figure out what the person's intentions and meanings are before assuming prejudice when it may not always be there. Right. So it does encourage, I think, it kind of encourages you to draw a line between you and a person you see as your oppressor and think of yourself maybe as categorically victimized rather than 
may be victimized in some situations. Well, I think that's right, and I think um, uh, too often in, in psychology, I think we tend to make what, what I have called the, the malevolent attribution error, which is to assume that a person's actions, and it's by no means unique to the microaggression literature, I think we do this in the world of politics too, that when we dis disagree with people, we, I think, far too often assume the person has ill intent, when in fact, some of these things may just reflect different ways of seeing the world. Uh, and uh, and again, in some cases, as I argue, John Heights argued the same thing, probably a lot of what we call microaggressions are sort of inadvertent cultural slights that may reflect people's lack of knowledge about a culture, obliviousness, and so on. Again, others are probably entirely innocuous, and others, probably a subset of them, probably do reflect a genuine prejudice or racism. The lines between or among those different subtypes is probably pretty fuzzy and hard to distinguish. Right. One of the things I think you've recommended is that people use the term unintentional slights rather mm -hmm. than the term microaggressions because the term aggression typically implies that people are intending to harm you. And if they're not, maybe the term unintentional slights is better. Yeah, and I think probably, not all, but probably a lot of what we call microaggressions probably are kind of inadvertent racial or cultural slights. I, I do worry that the term microaggressions was initially coined by, by Chester Pierce, who was a Harvard psychiatrist in, in the 19, uh, 1970, coined it. And then Daryl Williams, kind of picked it up uh, about um, uh, 20, 20 uh, years later, 25 years later. Um, the, um, the worry I have is that that concept and the very term of aggression often implies ill intent. And I'm not sure it's going to be conducive to cultural understanding or, or, or racial understanding. I suspect that when we, when you tell someone, oh, this is a microaggression, um, that is uh, is going to make both sides feel more defensive. And, and I think it, it may lead both people on both ends of the conversation to clam up and not listen to each other. Right. So you close your article with some recommendations. Could you talk a bit about those? Sure. Uh, yeah, list uh, a lot of them are, are research oriented. So I think I listed a good seventeen different recommendations for how to improve the the quality of, of research. On the research front, I think there are, there are um, a number of suggestions I have. One of them I think is to to do a better job of studying the people who are emitting microaggressions, and and there are now I think a couple of papers that are doing that. And I just saw one that came out. I have not a, a close chance to read it, but one that just came out that does in fact suggest some potential link between microaggressions and the people emitting them and, and overt racism. The correlations were, I think, moderate, which is about what I would predict, actually. So I, I think too much literature has has relied on respondents' self-reports of both microaggressions and their own mental health, which I think may introduce a kind of confound due to personality traits and um, other kinds of psychological characteristics. So looking more closely at the people who actually emit uh, these microaggressions and their characteristics, I think, is, is very uh, important. Um, I think looking at different reporters is also important. Looking at both self and observers, I think, is, is another big suggestion I have. I think in terms of real-world uh, implications, I, I argue that microaggression training programs, in my view, again, well-intentioned, well-meaning, they may do some help, but I worry they may be premature. Um, I think that um, at the very least we have to approach them very carefully because uh, there's an assumption out there that doing something is always better than doing nothing. 
when it comes to reducing prejudice. I understand that that uh, assumption, but I think it, it may be misguided. We, we've learned the hard way in history of social science that sometimes if we prematurely introduce a social intervention before we really understand the phenomena at hand, we may end up doing more harm than good. And, and I, I worry that by sensitizing people too much on college campuses to microaggressions, we might actually end up producing backfire effects. Again, it may make both sides feel defensive. People may be on the lookout for microaggressions. And in some cases, yes, in some cases it might allow them to detect microaggressions that um, were subtle, but in other cases it may lead them to make false positive identifications of, of things that in fact are not microaggressive. Uh, and that and that might make them feel defensive because they may be on the lookout for any potential hint of something that could be problematic. And then it also might make people who are on the other side, the receiving end of that, feel that they have to walk on eggshells and watch everything they say. So I, I think both of those could be problematic. Right. I think uh, one thing that might be helpful is to do a controlled study. If you actually think of microaggressions training as an intervention, someone could potentially have an experimental group of participants who undergo that and control group that doesn't, although that would be that would be difficult to measure the consequences because the consequences happen in real life. That's right. So you go ahead. Yeah, but I agree with you. I think I think uh, doing a randomized con control trial, I think it's not easy, but I think it could be done. And um, I think we, we need a lot more evidence to first show that these kinds of programs are helpful. I think a lot of university college administrators, including those at my own campus, have sort of rushed ahead to apply these programs with, with the assumption that we've got a problem here, which I agree with. There still, there clearly is is racial prejudice on on campuses. There's certainly we, we've not extinguished it entirely. There are certainly pockets of prejudice on campuses. So we've got a problem. We have to try to fix it. The problem is I'm not sure that that's always going to be the best approach. And we know there's at least some research. It's laboratory research, but we know at least there's some research suggesting that that diversity training programs, if they are done in a way that's perceived as coercive or over-the-top, ham-fisted, there's some suggestion that those programs might actually paradoxically increase prejudice uh, in the long run. So we have to be careful not to do more harm than good. There is, I wrote an article in 2007 that was actually more on psychological treatments rather than training programs, but one of the conclusions I had in this article is that there seems to be a subset, I think luckily it's a minority, but there seems to be a subset of psychological treatments, psychotherapies, that actually seem to have backfire effects. And one lesson of that, and, and Tim Wilson at the University of Virginia has made the same point, is that we cannot necessarily trust face validity, that is whether an intervention would seem to work, would seem plausible on its face to work. We can't always trust those intuitions to tell us whether or not an intervention works. We have to actually do the hard work of doing the study. And um, uh, there's there's no clear evidence about which treatments are likely to backfire. Although I would argue there's some suggestion that if treatments are perceived as too coercive, if people feel that they're being told what to do uh, in, in, in a way that's not collaborative, I think there is some suggestion that those kinds of treatments can, in some cases, be, be harmful. And I worry a bit that may be the case with microaggression training programs, too, although we really, at this point, we really just don't know. Yeah, you know, I know there have been some cases of professors, quite kind of rare cases, but some cases of professors feeling like racial sensitivity training at their campus has been overbearing. 
Yeah. There was one case, I believe, at Duke Divinity School recently. But getting back to the article, you've presented this now um, at conferences. I was at one of those presentations back in January at San Antonio. What kind of reactions have you got from, from the psychologists at these conferences? If I only presented at that one conference, um, but I've certainly gotten emails from, from colleagues around the country and, and responses and, and blogs and so on. I have to say, I've gotten less hate mail than I expected. I expected to get a lot of uh, a lot of angry mail, a lot of hate mail. I got I got less than I expected. I've certainly got criticisms here and there, which I think is healthy. I think I, my feeling is, if I'm going to put myself out there and criticize other people's research, they have plenty of right to criticize me in, in return. But I, I really haven't gotten any uh, extremely negative responses. I, I think some of the responses have been been thoughtful. I, I think some people feel that. Um, um, that I have underestimated the the severity of microaggressions or the impact and so on. And, and again, my, my attitude there is I'm open to it. I think um, again, as I argue in the article, I'm I would be very surprised if what are currently called microaggressions don't have some negative impact or some negative effect on mental health. Um, um, so again, I, my my attitude is I'm willing to look at, at those kinds of, of data. There have been a couple of critiques that have, uh, I'm not sure they've been published yet, but they've been floating around the literature. One, one interesting critique, you know, which I'm not sure has yet been published, is that I seem to have underestimated the historical context of microaggressions. I think that's a reasonable criticism that uh, a lot of these statements that may seem innocuous to me may reflect code language and... and and may have a different meaning to people in minority groups. I think that's a reasonable point. I actually agree with that. I think my only response to that is I think I don't think that's inconsistent with my point of view. Again, I think that um, microaggressions are, are multiply determined. I think some of them do reflect uh, prejudice, some of them subtle forms of prejudice, and some of them I think probably have a very different impact for, for minority than majority individuals. And I think that's something worth uh, keeping keeping in mind. So I, I'm, I'm happy happy to accept that that amendment. I think that's a reasonable criticism. I think some other criticisms were uh, maybe somewhat less helpful. I think I occasionally have gotten this thing that people from majority groups don't have a right to criticize this literature or, or that a few people have gone so far as to say it's it's racist to criticize the microaggression literature or that uh, one, uh, one person I read recently said that uh, uh, my article and ones like it are themselves microaggressions and so on. I, I I don't think that's too helpful. I think that's not a good sign when people have to resort to that kind of argument. I, and maybe just my own training as clinical psych as a clinical psychologist, but it reminds me a little bit of the old the old days um, <laughs> of psychoanalysis, where where psychoanalysts would uh, say, if you disagree with us, therefore you're you're you must be resisting unconsciously or something. You must have problems if, if you're doing that. And, and that didn't that didn't work very well. I, I think that in general. People on both sides. I should welcome criticism, and I think people who who um, support the microaggression research program should welcome criticism. I think we all benefit from more criticism, and it, it should be done in a way that I think is respectful and, and that doesn't call into question people people's motives. And as I've told people, if, if people feel I'm being disrespectful, I don't think I have. But if anyone feels that way, I'm I'm open to that too. Someone should should tell me that. But but I, I think uh, my own take is that um, both sides I think would benefit from greater receptivity to criticism. I don't think questioning people, I think questioning people's conclusions, and some people have questioned mine, I think is, is fine and healthy and constructive, 
I think, questioning people's motives and, and, and trying to shut down conversation by saying any criticism of this concept must itself reflect prejudice or racism. I, I don't think that's likely to be helpful, and I, I suspect in many cases it's also not going to be true. Um, so, um, so you know, and again, there's been a range of criticism, but I have to say, in general, I've been pretty pleased by it. I, I think... Um, uh, I think I think most of the psychological community, even those people who have not uh, always agreed with me, have in general responded constructively, and, and I'm pleased to see some people are now doing studies to try to address some of these criticisms. Again, I'm seeing some people probably they're trying to to rebut some of what I said, but that's 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 part of science too. Some people I think are trying to do more to to study the people who admit these uh, ostensible microaggressions and study their characteristics to see whether or not they're actually prejudiced or racist, that I think is important, and I'm glad to see that. Uh, I'm actually collaborating with a couple of colleagues at Swinburne University in Australia who read my article and were intrigued by it. So we're actually doing some work on microaggressions that is starting now. We're, we're trying to actually randomly assign some people to receive microaggressions uh, and other people not to receive them, and then looking at their effects on mental uh, health. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, uh, so I think that that'll be quite quite interesting as, as well. So um, so again, I think these have all been been help, helpful, constructive, uh, virtually all of them help, helpful, constructive uh, discussions. And, and um, again, my view is that the constructive criticism is, is the lifeblood of science. I'm glad to hear that there's some interesting work going on now as a result of that article. One of the things that struck me as at SBSB was your particular presentation was part of a set of presentations that were assumed to be politically controversial and the session overall went much better than I expected. Um, there were definitely no violent protesters, no no protesters. The questions were, some were confrontational, but they were all civil and interesting scientific questions. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I never mind tough questions. I, uh, I've got a thick skin over the years. <laughs> And I've, uh, you know, I've learned, um, you know, so long as the question is, is phrased in a respectful way, I think that's reasonable. And frankly, I think as presenters, we have a responsibility to be to be respectful. Also, it doesn't mean we can't be critical or tough. We should be when it needs to be. But I think because we're dealing with controversial issues, I think it's also incumbent on us to do it in a way that communicates respect and, and doesn't go beyond the data on our end. We don't want to make the same mistake that the people are criticizing or are making, which is to, to make extravagant claims that go beyond the evidence. Right. Well, one other topic I wanted to talk about, I know you've got a paper in the works now. It's about the Goldwater Rule. Can you talk a bit about what the rule is and what you're writing yeah. about? Yeah, that one, uh, this one I thought I, I'd gotten myself out of controversy. I may, <laughs> I may have entered an even bigger controversy. Um, so it's actually a paper that is in press now at the same journal in which the microaggressions paper was um, published, which is Perspectives on, on Psychological Science. It's a journal of the uh, Association of Psychological Science. So the Goldwater Rule, uh, it's kind of funny. It, it uh, got a lot of attention back in the 60s, early 70s, and it kind of disappeared. And, and for reasons I'll explain momentarily, it's, it's made uh, discussion of it's made a big comeback. So in uh, 1964, Barry Goldwater was running against Lyndon Baines Johnson for president. And um, it was a very contentious election. Uh, Goldwater Center from Arizona was uh, uh, conservative. Uh, Johnson, um, who, was, um, who had uh, just assumed the presidency after the uh, assassination of JFK, was, was the Democrat. And um, Goldwater was considered to be um, 
uh, far too conservative for most people. He was actually more of a libertarian conservative, but he was uh, quite far right in terms of d defense policy and so on. And uh, a lot of liberals didn't didn't like him. So um, a magazine, which is now defunct, called Fact, uh, F-A-C-T, uh, sent a survey to a large number of, of psychiatrists uh, asking them to comment on, on um, Goldwater's mental health and, and um, over a thousand responded and many of them wrote very, <laughs> what we, I think we now agree are very insulting incendiary comments about Goldwater, all of which got published in this issue of fact. Some people uh, declined to respond, uh, some of the psychiatrists. Others said, uh, I don't agree with his politics, but he doesn't seem mentally disturbed to me, but, but many of the responses referred to him in very derogatory terms, some calling him schizophrenic or bipolar or paranoid or disturbed. Others made psychoanalytic uh, conjectures about his relationship with his mother, <laughs> things like that. Um, so it was uh, it received a lot of uh, criticism, uh, and even, even some people who disliked Goldwater intensely thought it was over the top and inappropriate for psychiatrists to be doing that. So um, Goldwater turned out um, uh, sued and um, um, was uh, was awarded um, uh, some some money. Um, uh, actually, brought the case to the Supreme Court ultimately. But about uh, 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 a decade later, a little less, less than a decade later, the American Psychiatric Association. In responding to the criticism and largely embarrassment over this, this fact magazine case, passed a rule. It colloquially became known as the Goldwater Rule, which more or less says, I'm going to simplify things here a little bit, but more or less says that psychiatrists should not, and it was actually going, it was beyond a guideline, but as a formal rule, psychiatrists are banned, prohibited from making um, diagnostic statements about public figures. And that's been the state of the Goldwater Rule. The, the exact boundaries have been kind of blurry, but if anything, the Goldwater Rule seems to have gotten broader of late, and, and the American Psychiatric Association now seems to say that psychiatrists, again, it only applies to psychiatrists, not psychologists, uh, psychiatrists should not make any comments about a public figure they have not directly examined. So the, the one exception to this well, it would be very rare for this to happen, would be if a psychiatrist somehow examined a public figure, like a presidential candidate or a president or politician, and then in turn got permission to release that diagnostic information. Again, that would be extremely unusual, but that would be the one exception in which someone could do that. So the Goldwater Rule, without getting too political, has gotten a lot of attention over the last year and a half, two years, in the wake of the candidacy and now presidency of Donald Trump, with a lot of people arguing that Trump has a personality disorder or uh, some other psychological condition that either makes him unfit for office or um, raises questions about his suitability for office. So the, the article we, um, we wrote looks at the empirical foundations behind the Goldwater Rule. The assumption behind the Goldwater Rule, in short, is what we call the direct interview assumption, the assumption that somehow... You, you glean a lot more information from a direct interview with a politician or other public figure um, than you would by watching that person, and, and that's why you need a direct interview with a person. And, and we argue that may have been true in 1964 when Goldwater was running for president, but we argue it's, it's almost certainly not true in 2017, where we, we live in a world of social media. There are hundreds and thousands of hours of 
of Trump and Clinton and Sanders and everybody else. Um, um, there's uh, we have access to their Twitter, Facebook, uh, videos, interviews, diaries, and so on. And, and we basically review literature, showing that, that although it's obviously all things be equal, it's good to be able to interview the person directly. There's there's now plentiful evidence that one can often make fairly valid diagnoses from afar if you have adequate enough information. So we argue the Goldwater rule is premised on on really outdated scientific assumptions that, that no longer hold. That's not to say that we argue that psychiatrists or psychologists should run around willy-nilly making slap uh, diagnostic judgments about political figures. We argue there there probably is, um, it's probably better to keep your mouth shut and not to say anything because um, uh, there, there certainly is, is a risk of harm to public figures. Uh, can give psychology and psychiatry a bad reputation, and, and we argue in general discretion is the better part of valor. But we also argue that the privacy that should be afforded public figures, which I think is reasonable, has to be balanced against public welfare. And and if there are cases in which a a politician may have a psychiatric disorder that could actually be relevant to public welfare, and at least some voters, again, most voters might not care, but at least a certain subset of voters might want to know about that, we argue that has to be balanced against the individual's right to, to privacy. So um, we argue the, the Goldwater Rule probably is is now uh, outdated and, and probably should not be upheld. Okay. Well, it looks like we've got to wrap up now, but um, thanks for your time. My pleasure. It. it was fun. All right. Well, take care. Okay. Thanks again. Bye-bye. All right.